A quick note to listeners. We recorded this interview before the recent high-profile arrest of Michael Avenatti. We talk a bit about Avenatti in this episode because the lawyer has made a name for himself by provoking Donald Trump. And he's also teased a potential 2020 presidential run. I'm worried about the Democratic Party nominating somebody that cannot be competitive against and beat Donald Trump in 2020. And that is the number one question that the party has to ask. In that way, he represents the sort of celebrity resistance candidate who will remain an intriguing plotline for Democrats over the next two years. So we kept that part of the interview in. Enjoy the episode. The reality is, is that after 2016 and even before it, everything we knew in the past got blown up to smithereens. Conventional wisdom is that there is no conventional wisdom anymore. We know nothing. We should assume nothing. We should go with the candidates that make our hearts skip a beat and that seem to speak authentically to the issues in their community. We've covered a lot of ground during this special series. But the truth is, there's a lot to know right now about how the Democratic Party is changing. And here, a week after the midterm elections, it's clear there's a lot we still don't know. So, spoiler alert for this last episode, the Democratic Party is complicated. And as we ramp up this introduction to the broader discussions you'll be hearing a lot in the future, I had a few final questions about the state of the party and what will happen to it during the 2020 presidential primary. And I have the perfect guest to help find some answers. I'm Amanda Littman. I'm the co-founder and executive director of Run for Something. Run for Something recruits and supports young, diverse progressives running for local office for the first or second time. We launched in January 2017 with the goal of recruiting 100 young people and instead have found more than 18,000 who say they want to run for office. More than 18,000? Mm-hmm. Wow. It's a movement. <laughs> As it turns out, yes. And, and Amanda has led the quote-unquote resistance for much of the past two years. But she's also an alum of a Florida gubernatorial race and even President Obama's 2012 re-election. She was also Hillary Clinton's email director. The other emails, as I like to joke. That's my one joke. <laughs> the other emails, yes. Um, and before Maybe that, as much as any Democrat, Amanda sees both sides of this establishment versus activist argument within the party. Yeah, I'm a little bit of an establishment hack, but also part of the <laughs> grassroots uprising. As it turns out, you can do both. We, can ta- <laughs> we contain multitudes. That's exactly right. You mean establishment hack in the most endearing way. Of, in of the course. best possible way. Amanda, how do you feel? The biggest question for Amanda are Democrats experiencing their own Tea Party movement? If you listen to our earlier episodes, you might think the answer is yes. We should be making demands because Republicans are not, you know, there to compromise. We should really go for the full realization of what we want. But the important follow-up question is, is that a good thing for the party's chances to defeat Donald Trump and Trumpism in 2020? Because if the midterms are any indication, you might think the answer is no. You know, we have seen candidates who advocate for abolishing ICE winning, at least in primaries. Is there a concern that the party is pushing too far to the left on some key policy issues? It doesn't seem to be too far for the people showing up in these April to September elections. So not yet. I'm Alex Rorty, and this is The Democrats' Way Back, according to somebody who sees both sides of the argument. America today begins to turn back to God. Comparing the resistance, or whatever you want to call this group of liberal-leaning anti-Trump voters, to the Tea Party is a fraught subject. 
It's no surprise many progressives don't like the comparison because, after all, they hated the Tea Party. We do not have the equivalents. There is nothing equivalent to the Tea Party and the House Democratic Caucus. They, they don't believe in government, they don't believe in science, and they don't believe in the presidency of Barack Obama. So it's a trifecta. Those people have hijacked the name of... But I think the comparison is at least debatable, even if each movement's ideological goals are obviously very different. At its heart, the Tea Party movement was about wrestling power away from the party's establishment and giving it to its grassroots activists. Of what has been a truly startling development in the world of American politics. A little less than an hour ago, this race was officially called uh, for Eric Cantor's Tea Party challenger, an economist from Randolph-Macon College uh, named Dave Bratt. Some people are saying tonight it is the biggest political upset in their lifetimes. Sounds familiar, right? That's exactly what someone like Carrie Evelyn Harris, the former Senate Democratic candidate from Delaware, talked to us about during the first episode. We had this fight to make sure that we were an independent country because we did not want to be ruled over by others. They say that everybody should have an opportunity, but the opportunity isn't necessarily there. They say that uh, we should be able to speak for ourselves and create our own laws, and yet there's this idea that unless you can mark certain boxes, you can't even begin to think that you should have the opportunity to serve in such as the halls of Congress. It's also how someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, now a congresswoman-elect, talks about her own approach. What is your definition of democratic socialist? The definition of democratic socialism to me, again, is is the fact that in a modern moral and wealthy society, no American should be too poor to live. And to me, that means every working class American in this country should have access to dignified health care, should actually be able to see a doctor without going broke. It means you should be able to send your kids to college and trade school if they, show, if they so choose. It's not about selling an ism or an ideology or a label or a color. This is about selling our values. The Tea Party had a profound effect on the GOP. In some ways, bad, costing them possible pickup opportunities in Senate races across the country. Of course, it might have also helped put Donald Trump in the White House. I am Jenny Beth Martin, and I am the honorary chair of Tea Party Patriots Action. Donald Trump is an evolution of what the Tea Party fought for. We wanted, and we still want, more personal freedom, more economic freedom, and a debt-free future. We realize the way that's going to happen is for someone to fight the establishment in Washington, D.C. And Donald Trump is a person who's willing to do that. So I put the question to Amanda. I'll let her explain how she thinks it's similar and different at the same time. Because we also saw the Tea Party engage in some self-destructive behavior, mm-hmm. is there, isn't there reason to, to worry that Democrats are doing the same thing right now? I don't think so. I think the Tea Party took down more Democratic incumbents than more broadly the grassroots left has. What I think the grassroots left has done is seed the ground in more opportune places. So in places especially where there were open primaries winning, but especially when you get more local, flipping red to blue with more progressive candidates than I think you would have expected, as opposed to blue-on-blue combat, so to speak, and taking on city council and school board and state legislative races in a really meaningful way that will then normalize those progressive policies for people moving forward. It also then floods the ground with more qualified women, qualified candidates of color who will one day then run for Congress or for governor or for Senate. Um, In the same way that the D Party sort of did uh, with state legislative races, we're doing now, finally. And there's a question of when they run for campaigns, but uh, that's one thing. But Mm -hmm. when they get in the office, 
I don't think anyone would argue that a lot of the Tea Party lawmakers in, in the House, for instance, have done anything but been a thorn in their own party leadership's <laughs> side. And, and there have been a lot of consequences for that. Why shouldn't we think that the same thing is going to happen with the left now? It's definitely going to happen. But I think it'll be for more productive outcomes. Why is that? Ultimately, we agree on the same values. We disagree on tactics in a lot of ways. Um, there's argument over is what is the best way to give everyone access to affordable health care? What is the best way to create common sense immigration policies? What is the best way to reduce police brutality or reduce gun violence? There can be reasonable disagreements within the left, and it will certainly be messy, but that's ultimately what governing is. It's supposed to be a little messy until you reach a compromise. But we share the same values. I don't know if that was true on the Republican side. Well, do you think that there is just intrinsically a difference between your rank and file Tea Party member mm-hmm. and maybe your rank and file liberal right now? Is there just a difference in mindset that that if you're a liberal, you're more willing to, to compromise? You're more willing to grudgingly accept that your leaders need to uh, uh, compromise? It's a tough question. It's I'm asking you to get in the head of these people. But that is an argument I have seen from some people on the left is just that their their side is just more willing to build, right? Where if you're on the right and because of your view of government, that there is just a, a, an interest in tearing it all down because you don't like government anyway. If you're a Tea Party person, Tea Party advocate, Tea Partier. Tea Partier. Tea Partier. <laughs> um, you want to burn it down. If you're a far left liberal, for the most part, you want to expand government services to make it better for more people, generally speaking, which means you are more interested in finding ways to get to yes than in ways to get to no, which I think ultimately builds better coalitions. I also think because Republicans are based on ideology, Democrats are more based on big tent values, we have to find a way to work together. There is a very singular, especially on the demographic side, a very singular vision of what a Republican looks like as opposed to what a Democrat looks like, which means we have to find ways to compromise. One coalition, you're saying more homogenous, the mm-hmm. other, just because it's <laughs> that's how the Democrats are built, yeah. more heterodox. And so maybe that there is more space then for disagreement because yeah. of just how the coalition is yeah, formed. They say we're a big tent party, and that's true both racially, gender-wise, ethnicity, background, economically, and ideologically. There is one way to be a Republican at this point in time. There are many ways you can be a Democrat. Do you think members of the resistance like being compared to the Tea Party? I hear different answers about that. What do you think? What do I think? <laughs> um, I think the Tea Party won, so people like winning. And I think there's some clear differences in that they were, one, a little bit more astroturfed than we are. Two, they, they really took over the inside of the establishment. We, as a collective outside groups, are working from the outside in conjunction with the official committees in the establishment group, but we're not trying necessarily to take them over from within. Amanda has a point about how groups like hers work with the powers that be in the Democratic Party. To me, at least, it was fascinating to watch how all of these resistance groups wanted to mostly work with the party and its candidates instead of trying to burn down the establishment like we saw with many Tea Party groups. How you doing, Democrats? Resistance Summer, it's all about engaging the grassroots. It's all about the Democratic Party reaching out to activists everywhere. Now, don't let the cooperation fool you. Amanda still has harsh words for the party leaders who she says are stuck doing things a certain way no matter how often it fails. I think we have found ourselves in a place where we can redefine what it means to be a Democrat and found new um, avatars for that. So 
a Democrat no longer looks like the rich old white men of the past. It looks like Danica Rome and Jennifer Carroll Foy and Andrew Gillum and Stacey Abrams um, and these incredible, especially women of color candidates running for office around the country that are actually able to authentically connect on progressive issues. And understanding that it can look a different thing across the country is a, an important lesson that it took some groups longer to learn than others. It threatens a way of doing things. But I also think, as it turns out, uh, we're right. <laughs> when we take risks, we win more often than not. I mean, you look at the candidates who are coming out ahead and rising as stars in this cycle, the flood of women running for governor, the LGBTQ candidates running for governor. If you had said 10 years ago that those would be like the stars of the Democratic Party, it would have been a little ridiculous. But as it turns out, that's what our voters want. But she's at least a little wary of resistance candidates overpromising what they could actually deliver. Well, you know, I'm just a, a simple political reporter, Amanda, <laughs> but that seems like a lesson that some people in the Democratic Party, um, particularly strategists or members of the dreaded establishment, yeah. might struggle to, to learn. Well, it's scary because it's new and um, it is something that candidates especially have to walk a really fine line on and that strategists are correct. Medicare for all might be really hard to pass. And do we as political operatives or what have you have a responsibility to only promise things we can deliver? Maybe. And voters want to dream big and we should aspire for big things. And what is it? You shoot for the moon, you land among the stars. If we shoot for Medicare for all, we might get something close. I have come around more to that argument over the last two years because I've seen it work for candidates. You've seen it work over and over again. And even if there is some risk of voters a year later when we don't get the big things we promised, but we get a little bit closer being a little disillusioned, there is value in that argument. And I think we should keep pursuing big things anyway. Is there a limit to what a candidate should say? I mean, that there is too much, like in the, I'm thinking if you're running in a moderate district, mm -hmm. I mean, is there some sense and maybe you don't say abolish ICE? Maybe you talk about reforming immigration more generally, but is there a limit to that argument? Because I know what you're saying, it is such a, um, a pervasive and mm -hmm. popular argument on the left, and I agree with you 100% that there is some merit there. There's no question. But is there an outer limit that you can reach where, in fact, it is better for the candidate not to say something like abolish ICE? Well, I think I'll push back on the premise. Mm -hmm. What's best is for the candidate to say what they believe. And if that really is abolishing ICE, even if their district is more moderate, then they should say that. Because what voters will respect more than anything else is somebody not feeding them bullshit. They will prefer someone who they disagree with, but who they know is telling them the truth and what they actually believe than to someone who they think is feeding them what they want to hear. Right. So just say what's in your heart. Yeah, in which feels like really dumb advice that consultants <laughs> can't charge a lot of money for, which is why they don't say it that often. We might have stumbled upon something here. Hey. Just, just, just maybe. Let's talk maybe a little bit more directly about 2020. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I made the comparison to the Tea Party. And, OK, you know, I understand the similarities and differences there. I think a question a lot of people will have is, are Democrats in 2020 poised to nominate a candidate like Trump? We're not talking about someone who is taking a hardline position on immigration, but someone who doesn't play by the rules, who doesn't have the kind of background that you would expect. Someone like, I don't know, Michael Avenatti. <laughs> Let the record show that Amanda did, uh, had a facial expression there that suggests she's not in favor of supporting Michael Avenatti. But this is a question that people are going to have. Amanda, Tell me why Tell me why the party wouldn't do something like that. I don't know who the party is going to nominate. I think I'm not in the prediction game ever anymore. I don't like being <laughs> wrong. 
But more importantly, I think the primary is going to be a really good thing for the Democratic Party. It's going to be messy and painful and hard and feel like fighting with your family over Thanksgiving for 18 months. And ultimately, we will come out stronger. Our voters will be more engaged as long as we're able to end it with all of the folks that end up losing supporting the eventual nominee. It'll be a good thing. I think it's hard to imagine a candidate that isn't representative of the broader demographic shift of the party. Um, That being said, what do I know? So I am cautiously optimistic that it'll be okay. Um, Maybe not the best answer for you, but <laughs> no, no, no. But 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 an an honest answer. It's honest. Uh-huh. It's it's an honest answer. If I've learned anything, it's we know nothing. So <laughs> it's a good lesson in the journalism community as well. <laughs> um, I can't believe you made me talk about Michael Avenatti. I, I'm mad now. There is like there is something I feel like that he tests. That is, is it just enough that well you got to fight Trump, right? Because that's his entire shtick. Mm-hmm. And my question is, and I think you have seen the Democratic primaries. It's a real question of that. Not, that's actually not enough. I know a lot of people think it might be. It's not. You have to run for it. You have to run for something. (laughs) But like, really, you can't just say I'm going to fight Trump. You have to be able to advocate for something meaningful for people. And I mean it when I say if you can't engage black women, you can't win a Democratic primary. I don't think he can. I think it also rules out a few other people. But like, I don't think he can. I want to end this project where it began. Exploring the Portrait Gallery in Washington with Carrie Evelyn Harris. You see in his eyes, right? You see his stature is bold and sure, but his eyes are very reflective. Carrie, as you know, was the former Senate candidate from Delaware who lost her primary in September, but whose candidacy demonstrated a new style of politics inside the Democratic Party. Earlier, we had talked about a portrait of George Washington. Similar to what I'm saying, there's change on the horizon. There's certainty in the fact that it has to happen. Now we're in front of Barack Obama, a painting of the most recent Democratic president seated against the backdrop of green ivy. I asked Carrie what she saw when she looked at this one. And tell me, what do you think about when you think about not just Barack Obama, but his presidency and his brand of politics? A few things. One is um, the boldness of running, right? It's... um, you know, he, he is also biracial, but he is always labeled as the first black president, uh, which is always something that stands out to me as somebody uh, of two worlds, um, because while you know that you are of two worlds, the world sees you completely differently, right? And yet there is an ability because of that to push policies in a way that allows you to see people differently. Most people only get to see one ethnicity, one race. Uh, We get to see multiple because we've sat at the tables. We've heard those inside conversations that most people don't get the the privilege to have. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the concessions he had to make. You know, there are many people that say uh, he's made a lot of uh, inroads for us. But then if you ask immigrant communities, they're like, more of us have been uh, deported than ever. But he felt that if he had done that, that he would get more in return. It was with his presidency, in my opinion, that we had come to a place where we ended parties being able to speak, to find compromise, to move forward. And it spoke to me so heavily about how much more we have to do to fix our nation, right? We are the greatest- It's probably clear how much Kerry likes and respects Obama and how much the former president means to so many in the Democratic Party. So America's at a crossroads. 
The health care of millions is on the ballot. Making sure working families get a fair shake is on the ballot. But maybe most of all, the character of our country is on the ballot. But it's no accident that Obama has come up so often during this series. So much of the movement now seeking to reshape the Democratic Party is about learning from his administration, the Republican reaction to it, and even his own shortcomings in the White House. We have seen repeated attempts to divide us with rhetoric designed to make us angry and make us fearful that pits us against one another, to make us believe that order will somehow be restored if it just weren't for those folks who don't look like we look or don't love like we love. When I see President Obama, when I see the idea there could be multiple things with this portrait, you see the same eyes as Washington, right? Persistence, this deliberance in his thought, and yet you can see the ivy and it can be a good thing, right? Um, Of growth, Uh, ivy goes towards the sun and 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 it finds life, and yet it could cover up a whole, an entire edifice, right? Is it showing his life or is it showing what could have been? was stopped because of the ivy, the weed, the racism of bigotry that we still have to fight for. You mentioned, I mean, how he went in and he, the way a lot of Democrats and liberals see this is he went in and he tried to extend all the branches to the Republican yes. Party and that he was perhaps naive yes. to do so. Yeah. It feels like there are a lot of people in the Democratic Party, perhaps you included, who are vowing not to make that same mistake. Well, I think that he did what he felt right at the time. And, and it's funny because when I decided to run, I had some um, people who were definitely in my corner, but said to me, you're, you're not going to negotiate, are you, uh, when you win? And I said, absolutely, I am. I said, the difference is I need to know what my non-negotiables are. I think that even when he became president, there was still that ability to talk a little bit. Um, nobody could have imagined the roadblock. We thought we had overcome so many issues that we had not. Um, I don't know if Hillary would have won, if she would have had the same type of thing. There are people in my family, when Hillary was running, saying, I don't know that I could deal with a female president, right? Um, There are many people who say they can't deal with a black president. We have to, at the same time that we're changing policy, we have to actively fight the bigotry that tarnishes our nation. I mean, that's a lot of Democrats are worried about talking yeah. about things like that. They right. quote-unquote identity politics. Yeah. I mean, there was, I think, it been a big movement since 2016 to get away from that. You're saying, yeah. no, yeah. embrace it. Well, there's a way to embrace it. If you're mm-hmm. using identity politics to drive a wedge, then you're wrong. And you're no better than the people that we're trying to get out of office. But if you're using it to strengthen society, if you're using it to say that our struggles are connected, then it's absolutely necessary. And then it's also important because when people can see themselves in an elected official, when people can see their story in somebody who's running for office and they're a different color, a different gender, a different sexuality, but then they find that connection, but they can discuss that difference and find the beauty in it, that's when we find strength. And his presidency embodied all of those things. There was the joy thinking we had overcome all of this, and then immediately we realized our job's not done. If I had told you eight years ago that America would reverse a great recession, reboot our auto industry, and unleash the longest stretch of job creation in our history, If I had told you that we would win marriage equality and secure 
the right to health insurance for another 20 million of our fellow citizens. I want to close with a final thought about what we've tried to do with this special series. You might have said our sights were set a little too high, but that's what we did. You've probably noticed how we kept asking our guests what they thought of Barack Obama, including that last bit with Carrie in the portrait gallery. I can't do that. This wasn't a show about the former president, but I thought the responses to him, especially from the liberals, were revealing. They respect, even love, Obama. But their version of politics is decidedly different than the former president's. We were really successful in electing President Obama two times, which means that for the last decade, the sort of Obama wing of the party has been moving an agenda and moving candidates under the guise of Barack Obama as an individual, not under the Democratic Party or even sort of like the left writ large. It's a huge problem. And that surprised me. And I think it underscores the biggest takeaway from this series. If a significant part of the Democratic Party is trying to move away from Obama, then a significant part of the party is clearly eager for major changes. And that's really what each episode has been about. Change. Joining us now, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democratic... We don't win this race with labels. We don't win this race with saying, I am this or I am that. We always ran this race with our goals and our issues in mind. Whether it's the grassroots, the advocates for men and women of color... The activists, even the moderate Democrats are talking about change. They just want the change to look a little different from the change progressives are fighting for. My own experience is that my colleagues in Congress, uh, my most progressive colleagues, really understand the math. We should respect intellectual diversity within the party. We should celebrate it. And uh, we should do the hard work of making sure that the final answer is the answer that, that allows us to be in the majority. Look, we can't do anything if we're in the minority in the House. It becomes an academic uh, exercise. It makes me think that the coming presidential primary, which really has already begun, is going to surprise people. With the 2018 midterms almost behind us, all eyes are now on who will run for president in 2020. The list of potential Democratic challengers to President Trump is growing. It ranges from lawmakers to mega donors and celebrities. This isn't your father's Democratic Party. And frankly, it might not even be your older brother's Democratic Party. It's a party ready for some big changes. And the battle over where it goes next is just getting started. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was Kennedy that said, basically, if you ignore the wills of the people, then there will be a revolution and we have to fight that. Now we're having another revolution that I don't believe will have to be turned violent, but it's definitely intellectual and pushing the point that we all should have the ability to serve ourselves. Thanks for listening to The Democrats Way Back. Thank you to Carrie Evelyn Harris, Sean McElwee, Jessica Morales-Riquetto, Lene Erickson, Jim Himes, Robert Rabin, Matt Barreto, and Amanda Littman for joining us on this special series. And thank you to producers Jordan Marie Smith and Davin Coburn. We'll be back after Thanksgiving with a look at the Republican Party and where it goes from here. In the meantime, you can reach me at arorty at mcclatchydc.com. That's A-R-O-A-R-T-Y at mcclatchydc.com. We'll talk to you soon.